0: Hello and welcome to mirror talk podcast. Your moment of greatness starts now. Today's guest retired at the age of 27 with $15,000 per month in passive income. She's the best-selling author of Money, Honey and Passive Income Aggressive Retirement. She's a former financial advisor and a real estate investor with almost 40 rental units. Welcome to the show, Rachel, how are you doing?
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Toby, for having me. How
0: are you? I'm doing so good. Thank you so, so much for uh, making time out to speak with me today. I've been looking forward to this um, this time to speak with you for a long while already, like over months already. Oh,
1: thank you. And, uh, <laughs> I'm so flattered. Thanks
0: for having me on. <laughs> yeah, because, it's, you know, your, your story is so wonderful, like, you know, being able to retire at a very early age and also, you know, still earning money and making progress and, you know, expanding and having two books under your belt, best-selling books, actually, under your belt. That's like a great story. So thank you so much for joining me today on this episode. And um, I, I would just love to k- jump into it and love to you know, know more about you and know about your career journey before you retired at the age of 27.
1: Yeah, for sure. My story kind of goes back to my childhood, really, in terms of where it began. And I was in middle school and high school. I grew up in a very wealthy county, like a very wealthy bubble, unrealistic bubble to grow up in. So although mm-hmm. my family was never wanting for anything. We always had food on the table. In comparison to some of my very wealthy peers, I felt like we were poor. So it was just mm. this comparison game. And I remember uh, for, just for context, some of the high school kids that I went to high school with got brand new BMWs when they turned 16. And that oh. is not how my family was operating. We were not even going out to eat at restaurants, let alone driving new cars or going on trips as a family. So I remember feeling like I didn't fit in at a pretty young age, and that's not the way you want to feel in middle school and in high school. So I thought to myself back then, back in high school, I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to end up like everyone else struggling with money. I don't want to have to operate on a strict budget for the rest of my life or or have to borrow money from family and friends to make it to my next paycheck. I wanted to be different. And I realized that what I did then would either set me up for wealth or for poverty. So that kind of lit a fire under me where I wanted to learn everything possible about finance and investing. And I'd already read a ton of books, but I got even more motivated. I think I first Mm -hmm. read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in high school. And that was the first book that turned me on to real estate investing and how that could be a really great path to financial independence. So that's kind of how it started with my childhood, you know, growing up in a house where money was a stressor there was never enough money that Mm. gave me a lot of limiting beliefs growing up and a lot of fears and i realized that fear can be either paralyzing or motivating and luckily Mm. for me in that situation it was very motivating and i i had this passion to become financially independent at a pretty young age
0: Mm. oh that's awesome and how are you able to like you know deal with these limiting beliefs like you mentioned earlier how were you able to you know, overcome that before you you know became successful with your passive income and your career actually?
1: Yeah, the limiting beliefs, they were hard for me to overcome because a lot of what I believed at the time is that there was never enough money to go around and money was always mm. scarce. So I definitely mm. had this scarcity mindset. And for mm. example, after college I was making $36,000 uh, USD and that's it's plenty for a single person to live off of. And I didn't have any student debt because I paid my way through school. But I I was so focused on, okay, how can I, within this $36,000 income, how can I save as much of that as possible? So I was cutting things back and I was always saying to myself, well, I need to cut back. I need to do less of this. I need to do less of this and really be careful about my spending. And I was able to save a lot. I I saved 50% of that. But what I forgot about is that you can also increase your income. So I also mm-hmm. could have been focused on how can I work part-time or have a side hustle or do something else to make more money because then I wouldn't have been so limited. So I think it took mm-hmm. me a while to realize you know, in- focusing on increasing your income is very impactful when it comes to your budget and your savings rate. And also mm-hmm. just getting over the there's never enough money mindset took years So I especially had to do things like meditation and affirmations and being very careful about the narratives I told myself about money. So instead of saying things like there's never enough and money is always stressful, instead of that saying things like there's more than enough money, money is abundant, money comes easily and effortlessly to me. I love money. I'm grateful for money. And Mm -hmm. you can see how there's, that's just such a a mindset shift. And once I could get over to that path, even if I didn't believe it at first, but I told myself those things enough over and over again that eventually I was able to shift my mindset. And now instead of this scarcity mindset, I have an abundance mindset.
0: That's so awesome. Because that is one thing I've been learning on this podcast journey, actually. Like this positive affirmation. Every time it keeps on coming to me back, like from guests, awesome guests like you, like always telling me, hey, Toby, you have to like, you know, be positive. Have Mm. this... Positive mindset, and you have through the positive affirmation, you you have this mind shift that you know provides abundance or opens you up to abundance, and that's awesome. Yes, that's, really that's so true. Yes,
1: thank you. Mm-hmm.
0: And and talking about you know, also one thing I said now that touched me was like um, you know he said it's not only about saving the money, but also finding a way to increase the money that you have, and that's also something I mistake. I think I personally make like I'm always trying to cut you know cost expenses and say oh as long as I can save more money, then I have. Enough money in the account, but that that's not enough to grow wealth. But I have to, you know, also find means to you know invest and also um, make more money for myself. Make my money work for me. Actually. Exactly,
1: exactly. That's an epiphany yeah. I had several years ago. That I, I found that when we're trying to save money quickly, what we tend to do is find ways to cut back. So we'll cook at yeah. home more, or we'll eat out less, or we'll spend less on online shopping. And those are all great things we absolutely need to live within our means, but there's Mm -hmm. only so much you can do to decrease your expenses, right? You're limited. You can't stop paying your rent or your car insurance or your car payment without having a lot of consequences. And not only that, but that also kind of keeps you in that scarcity mindset where you're thinking, Mm -hmm. well, in order to save more money, I have to reduce my standard of living. I have to reduce my quality of life and I'm always having to give something up. Whereas if you focus on increasing your income, the beautiful thing about that is there's no cap on how much money you can make in a year. There's nothing stopping you from making more money. And the best part is you don't have to give up your quality of life to do so. So if I want to go spend 400 bucks on new clothes, I could either give something up in my budget and cut back somewhere else, or I could go out and make $400 extra and then have the best of both worlds. So I think, again, I think it's it's important to do both decrease your expenses and increase your income if you really want to make an impact
0: yes I love that that's really awesome and that's what motivates me to also look into your book um, passive income aggressive retirement which is which is number one selling in wealth management and other categories on Amazon right now congratulations on that that's thank awesome you. thank you
1: so much I appreciate it
0: <laughs> so for, so from from your success um can you advise me on what to do in order to you know earn money passively
1: yes okay so passive income let's start with defining it because I think there's a lot of misconceptions around what passive income is. So mm-hmm. passive income is not a get-rich-quick scheme. It does take time or money to create. So it's not just something that you snap your fingers and you have a passive income stream. Um, it, it takes time or money to create. Passive income to me is money that is earned with little to no ongoing effort, Now, people ask me, well, is anything truly passive? And maybe portfolio income is passive where you're earning like interest, dividends, capital gains off of the stock market. But the problem Mm -hmm. with that is you have to have so much money in order to generate meaningful revenue. So normally you'd Mm -hmm. have to have, you know, one, two, three million dollars if you want to generate a good passive income stream from stocks. So Mm -hmm. that one definitely is very passive. The others that I talk about, though, in my book, I would say that They typically take a couple hours a week or a few hours a month of work in order to maintain those income streams. So, no, it's not completely passive, but compared to a nine to five job or a 40 hour or work week full time salaried job, to me, it's very, very passive. And then the epiphany I had with passive income is that once your passive income exceeds your living expenses, you're retired, you're financially independent. Once I put that together a few years ago, that's what my husband and I started working towards. So we we started thinking about how can we generate passive income? How much passive income do we need? And how can we grow our passive income streams as quickly as possible? And that's what allowed mm-hmm. us to retire early.
0: And can you share that with me? How are you able to you know, grow your passive income and even sustain it?
1: We started in 2017 with creating passive income. Before that, mm-hmm. we didn't have any passive income. We were both working full time and didn't have any side hustles or anything. In 2017, we invested in our first rental property, which was a duplex in Kentucky. And then later that year, I self-published my first book, Money, Honey. So we had these two passive income streams, rental income and royalty income. And we focused on growing those as much as we possibly could over the next couple of years. So with rental income, it was just about how can we find the next property more quickly? How can we continue to come up with the down payments? And I'm happy to go into more detail about that. And then with the book royalties... It was hard to grow my book sales at first because I was still working full time. We were managing our rentals on the weekends. Like I just didn't have a lot of time to invest into marketing my book. So it stayed flat. I think I was earning around $1,000 a month from my books for the first year. Um, Mm -hmm. I just didn't have time to invest into it. But once I quit my job in 2019, I was able to launch my second book and then devote a lot more time to my business and create online courses, and create programs. And now I'm earning even more from my business, Money, Honey, Rachel, than from my rental properties.
0: You said you were going to explain you know, some things we could do, like maybe for rental. Um, maybe we could talk about that le- later down um, during the conversation. Yeah. But I'm, I'm looking forward to you know learning about this you know, rental and properties and how one can invest into real estate or things like that that would be awesome yes absolutely but before before we go there i want to know like something very critical and um important to me which is how, how do you make smart choices or take risk and deal with you know losses because sometimes you know before dro- dropping the nine-to-five to pick up the passive um you know side hustle or a business mm-hmm. you want me to think about oh am i making the, the smartest choice am i making am i taking a big risk um if i lose everything what will happen to me so how do you make the smart choice take risk and also deal with um, losses?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So one piece of advice that's given to entrepreneurs that I disagree with is when entrepreneurs are told, take a leap of faith and the net will appear. Because oftentimes I think we interpret that as just quit your job and then start your business and see what happens. And Mm -hmm. I think that is very risky, right? Because if you quit your job without having any other money coming in, then that puts a lot of pressure on you and you're going to be operating out of a place of panic and desperation as a new-time entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur is hard enough without having the pressure of feeling like you have no money coming in and you have to do something quickly to make money. So I I think one way to mitigate the risk is instead of just flat-out quitting your job, start your side hustle or your business on the side. Start it in the evenings and the weekends and work on monetizing that before you quit your job. So and and have a goal in mind. So think through what income would I be comfortable living off of uh, from my side hustle before I quit my job. Think that through. Have a number in mind. Uh, now my I was very conservative with how I approached this. So my husband and I not only did we want to replace my full time income before I quit, but our goal was actually to get to ten thousand dollars a month in passive income really passive profit before I quit my job. So that way I was basically going to be making more from my passive income than from my full-time job. And luckily we were able to do that. Not everyone will be able to to get to that place without investing more time, but we were able to do that before quitting my job. So I would say that's one thing, is just monetize your business before you quit your job. And then a second thing is income diversification. So a lot of us think that having a full-time salaried position equates to job security and income security. But if you are dependent on a single source of income and then what happens if you lose the job or you get laid off or your hours get reduced, then that income source goes away and then you're in really big trouble. So the best way to secure your income is to have multiple sources of income, to diversify your income streams that way, if one income source goes away for some reason, you still have other income streams keeping you afloat. So a really mm-hmm. great example of this was in when COVID first started in March, April 2020. Um, we were making $10,000 a month in profit from our rentals on, in a typical month. But in mm-hmm. April of 2020, we did not make that much money. We made like, we made $0 in April. So Mm -hmm. our $10,000 a month income stream went to nothing and we broke even. We didn't lose money. We broke even, Mm -hmm. but it was still a a big loss from an income perspective. The Mm -hmm. only reason I wasn't totally freaking out when that happened is because we have all these other income streams keeping us afloat. We have the book royalties and the online course and investments in the stock market and interest and all these different things. So even though we lost that income stream, we were totally fine. Um, It was just a blip in the radar. So I think that's another thing to reduce the risk and to protect yourself is to make sure you have income coming in from multiple sources.
0: And that's awesome. And also, that's very, that's very smart, actually. And does this also help, you know, um, to eliminate money stresses and fears? Or are there other things that we could do to eliminate that kind of fear, that fear that we have for, you know, our money going? Or
1: Absolutely. Stressing? the more. So I think I read a statistic that millionaires, on average, have seven streams of income. And mm-hmm. the way I see it, the more income streams I have, the safer I feel. Because at this point, I feel like I could lose half of my income streams and still be okay. So I think it definitely helps take the stress off, takes the pressure off. And another thing that helps is having a solid emergency, uh, emergency fund. So even though I have enough income coming in to cover my expenses, I'm still saving money each month and I'm still building up a savings account. So I have mm. years worth of living expenses saved where if everything, worst case scenario, I lost everything, all of my income streams, I would still have a really big savings to live off of. And that, so I think that's another tip for people is to make sure you have at least three to six months worth of living expenses set aside.
0: For someone out there who wants to, you know, um, you know, start like a kind of business, you know, on the side or like have, have some side hustle, soul, as we call it. Um, what advice would you give that person? Like a um, person that is working a nine to five job, for example, right now, and it's so stressful, so ethic, and still the person is having the, you know, the passion mm-hmm. to start something by the side. What advice would you give the person um, in order to kickstart? Yeah, yes, side okay.
1: So if you want to start something on the side or start a side hustle, then the first thing is to understand what kind of side hustle you want to form. So there's two mm. categories of income. There's passive income, which we've already talked about a little bit, And you're not trading your time for your money. It's passive. Um, You only have to work a little bit to maintain the income stream. And then there's active income. This is where you are actively trading your time for your money. So you might be paid by the hour or by the shift or whatever it may be. So examples of active income are driving for Uber or Lyft or driving for DoorDash, babysitting, dog walking, house sitting, uh, mowing lawns, shoveling snow. So these are all things where you you actually have to be working and you're trading your time for your money. And that's great. If that's what you want to do, that is great. That's a great way to make extra income on the weekends. Or if you want to go the passive income route, then just understand it will take time or money to invest in order to create the income stream. So there's a longer lead time to get the passive income stream into place. But once you have it going, then it becomes very hands-off and very passive. So if you're looking at creating passive income, the first question to ask yourself is, do you have more time or more money to invest into creating it? Now, if you're anything like I was a few years ago, you would have said, I have neither. I don't have time and I don't have money. So the next question to ask yourself is, which one's going to be easier for you to create more of? Will it be easier for you to free up time or to generate more money? Because you have to have one or the other or both to create a passive income stream. And then from there, once you know the answer to that, you can narrow down the different types of passive income to figure out which will be the best fit for you.
0: So some of these, we're saying, oh yeah, um, Rachel, you you went into you know um, rental property or real estate, but well, I think that's for me a um, far reach. Like I don't have that uh, money or I don't have that you know passion to do that. What are like other you know examples of business I could you know get into you in know to earn passive income?
1: Yeah, so real estate investing is a huge category of passive income. And I used to think, well, I don't have enough money to invest into real estate to get started. Mm -hmm. But I realized there's actually a lot of ways around that, Um, at least in the U.S. There's some unique things you can do, uh, such as house hacking, wholesaling, what's called the Burr method, where you don't have to come up with a ton of money in order to purchase a rental property. However, if you're not interested in owning property, you don't want to be a landlord, you can still Mm -hmm. enjoy the benefits of real estate investing through other means. So you can invest in REITs, real estate investment trusts, which is like a stock market investment, and you can earn profits and dividends from that. Um, You can also invest in crowdfunding platforms such as Fundrise. So I have money invested in Fundrise, and it's a really cool platform where I'm kind of like indirectly owning real estate through their platform, and then I get a quarterly dividend from that. So that's another good option without having to have the hassle of finding the property and managing the property. So that's one mm. category is, is rental income. And then another, there's there's so many different passive income streams, but another category is royalty income. So royalty income is typically when you create a piece of literature or a piece of art that you create once and is sold over and over and over again. So all mm. of the effort into creating the passive income stream happens in the very beginning. And then once you have that product created, you can just sell it over and over and over again. And that's that can be very passive if you set it up the correct way. So examples of that would be self-publishing a book. And that's one of my big income streams. I make between five to ten thousand dollars per month in profit from my two books. So you can self-publish a book, anyone can do it. Another idea would be to create an online course or some other type of informational product. That you create once and sell over and over again or like a digital download you know there are people on etsy that create wedding invitation templates or whatever templates and it's just available as a digital download they create it once and then people can download it over and over again forever so royalty Mm. income streams are great because they typically require more time than money up front and i feel like for most people starting out that's what they have. They have more time than they have money. For example, with money, honey, I spent $560 to launch my first book. So it wasn't a ton of money. It was some money that I had in savings, but most of the effort in in writing and launching my book was the time that I had to put into it. So those that just mm. gives you a few ideas, rental income, royalty income. There's a ton of others, but um in, in the book, I outline 28 different income streams. So trust me when I say there is something out there for everybody.
0: Yes, yes. Um, I'm going to encourage everyone to pick up the book, a copy of the book, Passive, um, Passive Income. I'm going to place a link in the show notes for this episode. So you could just click on it and, you know, um, get, get it on Kindle and read it. And Thank you. And get blessed from, from it, yes. And it's so awesome that you made mention of um, money on you already. Because in this awesome book of yours, you, you write about, you know, seven-step guide, for getting our financial stuff together. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, you know, now that we've gotten our passive income in place, we're having this multiple stream of income, we have to, you know, manage our finance mm-hmm. also. So, but what, I would love to know what inspired you to write this book, apart from this, and um, can you walk me through this seven-step guide?
1: Oh, yeah. So what inspired me to write this book is that I used to be a financial advisor, and so in my Mm. early 20s, all of my family and friends came to me for financial advice, which was great. That is what I love to do. I began to wonder, though, well, why aren't they reading books or learning on their own? And then I had Mm. this aha moment where I realized, oh, yeah, that's because personal finance is boring for most people, right? It's overwhelming. (laughs) It's intimidating. It's complex. No wonder Mm. people don't like to learn about it. So I thought to myself, well, how can I make this topic sassy and fun and simple? And that's where the mm-hmm. idea for Money, Honey came from. So it's really a mm-hmm. book that's designed to make this boring, overwhelming topic into something that's easy and fun to learn about. And it's resonated the most with female millennials. Cause I truly was writing it for like my best friend or my sister. So that's why I wrote money, honey. Um, there's a lot of great money management tips in there and I'm happy to share as many of them as you want. But one of the things that I tell people, cause I get asked a lot, well, where do I start? If I'm just starting with trying to get my finances in order, what is the very first step? So I always tell people the very first step is simply to track your expenses for 30 days. So just track your expenses for 30 days. You don't even have to start off with a budget. You just want to understand where your money is going. And I think it was Dave Ramsey that said, a budget is simply telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. So when you track your expenses, if you've never done it before, it will be very eye-opening So as an example, and I feel like I shouldn't admit this because I'm supposed to be a finance guru, but for example, (laughs) when my husband and I first did this, we realized we were spending over $900 per month on groceries, like groceries for two people. That's not even including restaurants or eating out. It was just groceries. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is appalling. I was so embarrassed. I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is more than some people's mortgage or rent payment. So it became Mm -hmm. very clear. This is our biggest opportunity to cut back. Even if we just cut back by 50%, we're going to be saving almost $500 more per month just by doing that one thing. So trust me, it'll be very eye-opening where to cut back. And from there, you'll naturally want to put a budget into place. So it's just about being conscientious and being mindful of your spending, and being very intentional about your spending. That's the first step.
0: Yeah. yeah. So can you walk me through the other steps also? Or do we have to pick up the book to get the, <laughs> the rest of the, of the sugar, of the honey? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the
1: rest of the honey. Um, yeah, so another step, and this isn't really the seven-step guide, that's kind of the strategy at the end of the book, but just in terms of some more things you can do to get your finances in order. Um, the mm. next step is, is about the golden number. So the golden number is something I talk about in Money, Honey, and it is basically your monthly income minus your monthly expenses. That's your golden number. So it's how much you're saving each month, how much you're saving each month. So the question is, how can you increase that every single month? Because your golden number is the most important tool that you have to reach financial freedom. If you're saving $20 a month, for example, then somebody saving $500 a month is going to have a lot more options. They're going to be able to do a lot more with their money and make their money work for them even harder. So you really need Mm -hmm. to think about how can I increase my savings rate? And that goes back to what we already talked about, decreasing your expenses, increasing your income. So I recommend Mm -hmm. just sitting down once a month and reviewing your spending, reviewing your golden number, and then asking yourself, what can I do next month to decrease my expenses just a little bit more And what can I do to increase my income a little bit more? I think with budgeting, I hate the word budget because it's such a dreaded topic and it's such a dreaded (laughs) word. Um, I don't know about you, but I've tried to budget before where I was so restrictive and I just made it so strict that I overspent like in the first few days and then immediately Mm. felt like a failure. The problem Mm. though, was that I just wasn't being realistic And so I think a lot of people struggle with that where it's like they go gung-ho on their budget and they decide they're going to cut back all this stuff all at once and then it's so restrictive. It's just not even real. Mm. So it's almost you're setting yourself up for failure. I think Mm. a better way to do it is go one category at a time. So for example, in the first month, how can you reduce your food budget by 25%? And then in the next month, how can you reduce it even more or move to a different category? How can you reduce your online shopping or your housing expenses or your car expenses? Because if you can focus on small, consistent progress, that is what is going to set you up for success more than just this one massive effort all in the beginning. So that's what I would say. Just be gradual. Be, um easy on yourself. Like, don't be too hard on you. You are going to make mistakes and that's fine. Just get back on track. And over time, as long as you're making that small, consistent progress, you'll make enormous progress over the years.
0: Yes. And talking about savings, um, you talked about, you know, four buckets savings strategy. Yes. Does it involve this or is there there another strategy to save?
1: Yes. So the four buckets is a strategy I talk about in Money Honey. And I came Mm -hmm. up with this. This is One of the things that's resonated the most with my readers is the four bucket strategy. I came up with this because savings always felt like such a complicated thing because it's like, well, I'm saving for all these different things. I'm saving to fly home on Christmas, or I'm just saving Mm -hmm. so I can get drinks next weekend or go on a trip (laughs) or save up for college fund or retirement or a wedding. So there's all these different things that you're saving for. How do you make progress towards all of them without dropping the ball? So I always felt it was very confusing and that's why I came up with the buckets. The four buckets basically breaks down your savings goals, goals by timeline. So like when you will need that money. Bucket number one is for emergency savings. And I always recommend you keep at least $1,000 set aside in bucket number one. Now it's not going to cover you. It's not intended to cover you if you like lose your job, but it is intended for those small unexpected expenses. Because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when you will have an emergency, right? You don't know when your Mm -hmm. car will break down. You don't know when your dog is going to swallow a tennis ball and have to be taken to the emergency vet. So that's Mm -hmm. what that bucket is for. It's basically so that you don't have to put something on a credit card and go into credit card Mm -hmm. debt. So Mm $1,000 emergency savings, that's bucket number one. Then bucket number two is your medium term savings, So not only do you want to use this as more of like a backup emergency savings account and have at least three to six months worth of living expenses set aside, but you also want to think about, okay, what are all the things I'm saving for within the next 12 months? You might be, if you're in college, you might be saving for books for your next semester of college, um, or you might be saving for a trip that you want to take in the next year. So you want to think about all the things you're saving in the next 12 months, and that will be held in bucket number two. Then you have bucket number three, and this is for long-term savings. So think of things that are more than, 12, more than a year away, but before retirement. This mm-hmm. normally includes bigger ticket items like an engagement ring, a savings account for a wedding, a down payment for a house. These are all the things you're saving for for the longer term. You'll want to keep those in bucket number three. And then bucket number four is for retirement. And I wish I could tell you, here's how much you need to save in bucket number four. (laughs) But I can't. It's anyone's best guess. And that's because no one can predict how long they're going to live. So it makes a big difference for somebody that lives until age 70 and only needs to fund five years of retirement versus someone that lives until age 100 and needs to fund 35 years of retirement. So it can obviously vary widely. But I have seen studies that cite that millennials will need to accumulate at least $2 million USD by the time they're they're 65 in order to successfully retire. So chances are Mm -hmm. it's more than you think. Like that's a huge number, right? That sounds very intimidating, very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's more than you think, which is why... Focusing on your golden number and saving as much as you possibly can now is the absolute best thing and the most important thing you can do.
0: No, In the first bucket that is for emergency, you said we should put like one hundred, I'm sorry, one thousand US dollars into it for, you know, in case um, the dog swallows the tennis <laughs> yes. ball or in case my, I have a flat tire on, on the highway, for example. But for the other buckets, um, do you have like the amount we have to put into this, like or percentage of our income or savings that we have to put into this? So
1: good question. So when you're saving for the buckets, you want to save for them mostly in order. So you you want to contribute a little bit to bucket number four, like a little bit to retirement each month. You just want to get into that habit. Um, Your retirement Mm -hmm. account, if you're in the U.S., might be a 401k or an IRA. Or it could be something else if you're in another country. But otherwise, Mm. you will fill up the buckets consecutively. So you'll fill up bucket number one first. You'll get that $1,000 set aside. Then you'll fill up bucket number two. And the Mm. amount that you need for bucket number two depends on your own living expenses and on the things that you're saving for in the next 12 months. So you'll save Mm. for that one next. And I recommend keeping that in an online high-yield savings account. And then once you have that full, then you'll work on bucket number three, which is typically like one of the bigger buckets and that takes a little bit more time. And because bucket number three is for the long-term, I recommend investing that in the stock market. Some people ask, well, why not invest bucket number two in the stock market so it can earn more money? Um, There's a couple reasons. Number one is that I wanna be able to access that money relatively quickly. But the main thing is that if you buy and sell stocks within a 12 month period, at least in the U S you have to pay short term capital gains tax. So that's, you have to pay a higher tax rate on it. So I recommend only investing in the stock market if you're going to hold on to your investments for at least one year. So that's why I say Mm -hmm. keep bucket two in a savings account and then put bucket number three, long-term savings, into an investment account where it can grow over time.
0: You've already answered the question that that came into my mind. Like, I want to ask, I mean, back account, am I meant to open, you know, that's, you know, after these buckets and when now you you have to put some in the stock market, put some in 401k and... Yes. Then we have our savings accounts to keep like the emergency fund or something.
1: Yes. So different yeah. accounts, you know, the, the emergency fund could just be kept in cash or checking because you want it to be liquid. Bucket number mm-hmm. two in an online high yield savings account. Bucket number three in an investment account, like in the stock market. And then bucket number four is going to be in a retirement account. So that kind of just gives That's like true. a broad overview. But yeah.
0: So for, for, for the moment right now, like um, we have this money in, 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 that's coming in from our passive income. We are saving our money. i you like some other money management skills that I can develop in order to, you know, build wealth?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we haven't talked about debt yet. And I like talking about debt because mm. there is such a thing as like, I call it tolerable debt in money, honey, versus bad mm. debt. Okay. Mm. And Dave Ramsey likes to say all debt is bad, and I don't agree with that because I think if you can use debt in a smart way, it can actually really help you build wealth. And I'll get into an example, but the first thing to go is consumer debt. So credit card debt is one of the biggest obstacles to achieving financial freedom because you're paying such a high interest rate on the money that you're borrowing, Normally, Mm -hmm. if you have a credit card, you're paying 20 or 25% in interest. So, if somebody has credit card debt, I typically tell them, let's aggressively pay that down as quickly as possible so that that's gone. And then you can focus more on investing in the stock market and building passive income. So, consumer debt Mm -hmm. is kind of the first thing to go. An example, though, of tolerable or good debt is if you invest in a cash flowing asset, so rental property. With rental property in the U.S., you can put down a 20% down payment and then take a mortgage. And then you're generating cash flow and you're building equity in an asset over time. And that's a really smart thing to do. There is definitely something to be said for being over leveraged and taking on too much risk and taking on too much debt So you want to watch out for that. But typically, I think if you're putting 20 or 25% down on a rental property, you're pretty safe. And that's what I've done with all of my rental properties. So that's an example of what I would consider tolerable debt. You know, anything where you're investing, borrowing money and investing money to earn cash flow or for an appreciating asset. So that, yeah, so that's an example of the difference between bad debt and tolerable debt.
0: Okay, that's great. So um, for for someone out there who does not like really know how to you know, differentiate that or something like that. One has to just just ensure that one takes note of everything you've explained now in order to know, okay, this is bad debt or this is a terrible debt. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yes. another question I get a lot is, do I, should I be saving my money or investing my money or paying mm. down my debt? So if I have this extra money at the end of the month, what do I do with it? Do I save it? Do I pay down my car? What do I do with it? So the the easiest answer to that is to look at the interest rates and always Mm. put your money towards the higher interest rate. So for example, if you have a 20% interest credit card that you could be paying down that debt, or you Mm. could be investing it in the stock market and earning 10%, then it makes Mm. more sense to pay down the 20% credit card first. So that's the order you Mm. should go in. Another example, if you could um, invest it in the stock market for 10% or pay down a student loan that's charging you 4%, it makes Mm. more sense to put any extra money towards investing in the stock market because you're going to get more Mm. bang for your buck. So does that make sense? Kind of just putting it towards the higher interest rate, whether it's like one that's hurting you or one that's helping you, the highest interest rate Mm. always makes the biggest impact.
0: The highest interest makes the biggest impact. Yeah. Yes. And talking about investment, you in your book, Money Honey, you talked about you know the four golden rules for investing. Yes. Can Can you walk me through these four four rules? Yes,
1: if I can remember them. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, <laughs> I think rule number one in Money Honey is um, buy low, and rule number two is sell high. So Mm -hmm. you always want to buy, in this, and there's a caveat to this, but in general, if you can, you always want to buy when the stock market is at a low. So when it went down for COVID, a lot of people were panicked and they were selling their stock when in reality, that was almost the best time to buy stock because you can Mm -hmm. kind of look at it like, oh, stocks are on a discount. They're on sale. Mm -hmm. So let's buy now when the market is low. And then on the Mm -hmm. vice versa end of that, sell high. So Try to avoid selling when the market's going down, You know, when something like COVID is happening. Avoid selling then. Instead, buy when we're at a peak or sell when we're at a peak. Now, I will say, though, that it is impossible to time the market. So in general, this is just something to be aware of, especially if we're going into a recession or the stock market is going down a lot. A lot of people's um, instincts are to sell and to get out. So the point of that rule is to just say, hey, don't sell stay in the market um, keep investing in the market and don't try to time the market there's a quote that says Mm. time in the market is better than timing the market which is so true Mm. the longer you stay in the market Mm -hmm. that's more impactful than like trying to time the market or predict what's going to happen so those are two things two of the rules and i think you might have to remind me on rule number three or number four i think one of them was to invest for the long term So it kind of goes back to just knowing that historically, the stock market has always gone up. So yes, it's Mm -hmm. volatile in the short run. It'll go up and down Mm -hmm. on a Mm -hmm. day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year basis. But historically, over the long run, it's always gone up. And so that can help Mm -hmm. you just emotionally make better decisions. Um, And then Mm -hmm. the last one might have been to set it and forget it. So I, when I first started investing in the stock market, I was tempted to check my investments every single day. And that caused me a lot of angst and anxiety because it would be down one day, it would be up the next. I'd be like, oh my gosh, my money is going down, it's going up, it's fluctuating, this is stressful. Then I learned that out of sight, out of mind. So I check my investments maybe once or twice a year, but the best way I've learned to manage my portfolio on an emotional level is just to not look at it. Cause I know mm. it's going to do its job over the long run. So I just need to be trusting of that and not try to like day trade and not try to micromanage anything. So mm. set your investments and don't check on them all the time and just let them do their thing.
0: Put the money there, set, um, invest and just let it grow. Let it, yeah. yeah yes. Do its thing. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So if I'm interested in, in what you are an expert in, like in rental property, How can I go about this and what can I do in order to grow my portfolio?
1: Yes, absolutely. So with rental property, the first thing that you want to do is just understand the laws and regulations in your country. So understand how much money do I need to come up with? What does it look like to get a mortgage? What is the property tax situation what is the insurance situation? Because while I can speak for the US, it's different in every single country. And once you have a basic understanding of that, then you can start looking for rental property. Um, You really want to understand location. So what locations are growing? Where are people moving to? What's up and coming? That tends to be a good good place to invest in. And are you willing to be a long distance landlord or not? So do you want to invest somewhere that's 20 minutes from you? Or are you willing mm-hmm. to invest somewhere that's an hour or two or three hours away from you? Um, so that's something to understand. And then for new investors, there, a lot of them make a mistake that they think that the, it's the rental income. So they take mm-hmm. the rental income minus the mortgage payment. And mm-hmm. what's left is their profit. Okay, so that's what they think. But that is actually not accurate at all because you have so many other expenses as an investor that you have to take into account. So yes, you want to estimate what your rental income is going to be, but not only do you subtract the mortgage payment, but you have to remember to subtract property taxes, insurance, the cost of a property manager, um, maintenance and repair, utilities, pest control, lawn care, all these big so there's tons and tons of expenses. So a lot of new investors get in trouble because they underestimate what their expenses are going to be and then they end up losing money on the investment property. So just make sure you're taking all that into account and this this is all stuff that you do and that you estimate before you even put in an offer, before you even buy a property. So you'll want to do this analysis on properties that you come across to determine, hey, is this a good property or not? Should I make an offer or not? And once you've run the numbers, then you can make an offer on the property.
0: So if I want to buy a property, if I've checked, I've done the old, you know, background check and everything, but I don't have the, like the total capital, what's like the the, the starting amount I should have or the, you know, the least amount of money I could have before getting like a loan from the bank to add, add to it? Or can I get like the old, you know, money, the old amount from the bank um, as a loan?
1: So it depends. It, pretty standard is that you would have to come up with a 20 or 25% down payment. In the U.S. though, at least there's several programs that can get around that requirement. So, for example, um, there is a technique called house hacking where there's a difference between buying a property as a primary residence versus buying a property as an investment property. When you buy it as an investment property, you almost always have to have a 20 or 25% down payment, which is a lot of money. So, typically, that's hard for people to do. However, if you buy something as a primary residence where you're going to live there, then there's a lot of programs that allow you to put less down. So with the veterans loan in the U.S., for example, you can put 0% down. With the FHA loan, you could put 3.5% down. Or just with the conventional loan, you could put as little as 5 to 10% down. You do have to live in the property, though. But that's called house hacking. So when people do this, they buy it as a primary residence and they live there. That's called house hacking, and that helps them get around the 20% down payment. Typically, they'll live there as their primary residence. They might fix it up for a year, and then they'll move out and they'll rent it out. Or another way I've seen people do this is they'll buy like a triplex, so a three-unit building. They'll live in one of the units and rent out the other two units. So it still counts as a primary residence, but it's also they're renting it out and generating some cash flow. So that's one way mm. to get around that twenty percent down payment. Um, another thing that that anyone can look up is the BRRRR strategy. So B R R R R, and it stands for. I always get this. I always get this messed up. It stands for buy, uh, renovate, refinance, rent, and repeat. And I might have gotten that mm. slightly out of order, but um, mm. this basically is a strategy where after you purchase your first rental you might have totally depleted your savings by then. So it's like, well, how do I come up with money for the next one? The BRRRR strategy basically shows you how you can refinance equity out of that first rental and use that equity as a down payment for the next rental. And that way you're not having to come up with the 20% down payments over and over again. You can kind of recycle your money. So those are two great strategies worth looking into.
0: As a former financial advisor, um, what are like some some common mistakes that you've come across that people make, you know, in in regards to their finance?
1: Oh, there's what, what, there's um, a lot. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's not, and unfortunately, the mistakes that people make, it's not their fault, right? So, mm-hmm. it's not our fault that we are in a financial education crisis. At no point in our lives are we taught how to manage our money, and then we're left as young adults to try to figure this out all on our own. So unfortunately, I see so many people dealing with these feelings of shame and guilt and embarrassment when it comes to their money, which breaks my heart. And that's why I do what I what I do. But I always tell people, don't be ashamed of the position that you're in. You didn't know better. And that's not your fault. And it's never too late to empower yourself and to learn more. Um, So, you know, one, I guess, mistake that people might make is not understanding how credit cards work or getting into a credit card cycle where all of a sudden they're in credit card debt and they don't know how that happened or how to get out of it. It's actually Mm -hmm. easy, really easy to get into credit card debt. Um, Credit card companies are very predatory, especially to young people. So if you don't know how they work, then you might think, oh, well, I can pay part of the balance off and then I'll pay the rest later and it doesn't matter, not really understanding that you're getting charged 20% in interest. So if you want to use credit cards, and I I definitely advocate for credit cards. I think they're great. You can get a lot of travel rewards, a lot of great perks, bonus points. They can be um, a huge benefit if used correctly. The correct way to use them is to make sure you're paying your statement balance in full every single month. So just make sure you pay off the entire credit card balance in full every single month. And if you're unable to do that or or too tempted, maybe, then you might just want to consider taking a break from credit cards altogether, you know, cutting them up until they're completely paid off. And then trying again later when you feel like you're better able to manage that, because that definitely can be very challenging. So that's one thing Mm. is credit card debt. And then I would say the other biggest mistake is just when it comes to investing, not investing early enough, So waiting too long to invest. And I don't want anyone out there listening, thinking, oh, well, I'm already 30 or 40. And so I've already missed out on all this time. No, it's not too late, right? The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time Mm. is today. And you still have a lot of time to Take advantage of the compounded gains over time. But just make sure you're getting invested as early as possible. And if you're not invested yet, get invested today.
0: Mm, and that's awesome. So, for that, that's one, those are sort of like some mistakes that we could, you know, avoid or some things that, you know, like you said already, like the best time to start investing is right now. So, we, we should have it in mind that we, we, we've not made a mistake by not investing 20 years ago. We could start now also, actually. So, are there like some other other tips that we, we didn't talk about or, you know, some other advice that you advice that you love to give us in order to, you know, become, you know, financially free?
1: Also? Yeah. Well, I think it, what I'd love to share kind of goes back to passive income. I truly think passive income is the most attainable way to achieve financial independence. And here's why. The way that we've traditionally approached retirement is what I call the nest egg theory. And this is where we work for 40 years, we work a nine-to-five job, and we save up money so that we have this nest egg saved so that by age 65 we can retire and live off of that for the rest of our lives. Now, historically, this has actually worked pretty well. The problem is times have changed a lot, like in the last 20 years, and the way we're approaching retirement has not changed at all. So, for example, the people in my generation are – burdened by the cost of college. Costs of college mm-hmm. have risen significantly placing an enormous burden, like student loan burden, on my generation. So that's something that's really held us back as a generation. Also, in the US, the Social Security Trust Fund is expected to be fully depleted by the year 2035. Okay, that is less than 15 years away, a little scary. So that's yes. that's a social program that we can't even necessarily rely on when we retire. And pensions are a thing of the past. So it's become harder and harder to successfully achieve this nest egg theory. And when you think about trying to save two million dollars by age sixty five, like I don't know about you, but I don't know many multi-millionaires. So that seems pretty challenging. With passive yes. income, what I love about it is that it's so much more attainable. To me, it's easier to generate five or six or eight thousand dollars a month in passive income. Than it is to try to save $2 million by age 65. So I just want to encourage anyone out there listening that you absolutely can do this. It, no matter your age or your income, you can create passive income and still retire early.
0: And the best time to start is right now.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> so for someone who is already, you know, very excited to start to kick start this thing, I'm going to encourage the person to pick up your two books on Amazon. But if they want to work and you know connect with you, maybe get some advice or you know ask some more questions, how can they connect with you and work with
1: yes, you? Yes, thanks, Toby. So anyone can find me on TikTok and Instagram or just a Google search. If you if you just search "Money Honey Rachel," that's always my mm. username. And what I'd love to do for your listeners, if anyone wants to download my passive income starter kit i will give that for free so you can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com slash bonus to download that
0: awesome thank you so so much for the bonus and thank you so much for everything i've been able to learn from you today you've improved my my financial wisdom today and i really appreciate oh, that. thank you thank so
1: you much. toby thanks so much for having me on
0: wow you made it to the very end of this episode Thank you so much for listening. I'm grateful for your time, your love, and your contributions. Subscribe, like, review, and share this podcast. God bless you. Bye.